Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So what do you do when you see a dog alone in a car on a hot day? I mean, it's hard to know what to do, isn't it? And besides, what are you allowed to do under the law? Well, an important law has just passed in Tennessee to protect Good Samaritans in these situations. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to share with you a personal experience I had a few years ago, and I'm going to replay a brief segment for you now. Then I started to think about the time when I was with a friend at a shopping mall. True story here. My friend and I came across a dog left in a car in the middle of the summer here in Palm Springs. And those of you who know, who live here in the Coachella Valley, know how hot it gets here in the summertime. I mean, it must have been 110 that day. And unless you're really an idiot, then you know that you can't leave your dog in the car on a hot day. Actually, it's illegal to leave your dog in a car in Palm Springs any time of year because of the unexpected and big swings of temperatures. But anyways, here it is, 110 degrees, and there's a dog in the car. The windows are barely cracked, and we all know that does a lot of good. Right on a hot day, you might as well leave the windows all the way up. So one of us, and I'm not going to admit which one on the air, but maybe some of the listeners that know me can guess which one. One of us broke the car window with a special device one of us has in the trunk of our car. Now, don't worry. This is a really good ending. People who know me know that I don't often tell or like to hear animal stories with bad or sad endings. As we broke the window of the car, we grabbed this heat-stricken, almost dead dog from the car. Out comes the guy who owns the car and owns the dog. Remember, great ending for the dog, although he was hospitalized for dehydration with heat stroke and actually almost did die. At this moment that I'm speaking right now, he's healthy, happy as a lark right now in his new wonderful home. But my point is, this guy could not care less about the dog. He did not say one word about us taking his dog. I mean, it's incredible. If you saw someone snatching your dog, wouldn't you say or do something about the dog? Okay? He didn't. He did try to get the police to charge us for vandalizing his car, which we were guilty of, but we weren't charged. But wait, it gets better. And this is actually the funny part. The guy was so pissed off that we broke his car window that he started screaming at us, calling us nasty names that I, I can't really say on the air here, but saying what a horrible thing we did by breaking his car window, and he's going to sue our big fat, you know, you know what, and trying to draw attention so people will be mad at us and side with him as we're running away with his dog. So now there's this huge guy, must have weighed 300 pounds, and sort of the tough-looking type tattoos on his arms and neck and earrings in his face and his body hair poking out of his tank top, this guy calmly goes right up to the guy screaming at us and calling us nasty names. He bends down, pulls something out of his pant pocket and slashes the guy's back tire and then turns to us with this big, beautiful smile on his face and gives up, gives us the thumbs up sign, and then he calmly walks away. True story. So I now want to welcome attorney Bob Ferber. Bob is former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much, Lori. Good to be back. Bob, we've talked about this situation before, and now there's a new law in Tennessee that addresses this. Why don't you tell us about it, and why is it important? Uh, Well, this law is a little different from uh, the laws that other cities have passed, and states. For example, in California, 
uh, they recently passed a law that gave immunity so that, in other words, in layperson's language, uh, that people can't be sued for breaking into cars to rescue animals that are there suffering from presumably, you know, it's a hot car. But in California, it's limited to police and animal services uh, personnel. Law enforcement now can break into a vehicle in California if they believe an animal is in danger and they can't be sued. Uh, they're protected. But this new law in Tennessee is interesting in that it goes further. It gives immunity to people, your average citizen, to you and me. It means that anybody who believes that an animal is in danger can break into a car and will be protected so that they don't get sued. And this is a good thing, right? I think it's a wonderful thing, uh, with some reservations, though. Uh, as an attorney, whenever we anybody who passes laws, we try to look at, can this law include conduct that we don't want? And, uh, and I think on first glance, people think, this is great. We don't want to have to wait in the parking lot for 20 minutes for animal control to come while a dog is suffering. We should be able to, as interested animals, as citizens who care about animals, we should be able to just break in. It sounds great. The complication is that in, in places like here in California, we've done a lot of training to, uh, to train law enforcement to know what to look for. So when they do break into a car, they're not breaking into a car and the car and in a situation where the dog is just fine uh so and for example law enforcement's trained to identify the body language of the animal if is it panting is there any water how long has it been there what's the temperature outside the temperature inside we even go so far in many cities like la to require that law enforcement use a special thermometer that measures the temperature inside the vehicle, not just out. Most people like you and me, we don't have that training. We don't have that equipment. And so my concern about this law is that there will be well-intentioned people who see animals in a car on a hot day and without having sufficient knowledge to know whether that animal is suffering or not, they may break into that vehicle and... Uh, something could happen that uh, could end up in a real lawsuit. Like what? Well, uh, for example, uh, we all think, okay, it's easy. You break into a car and you just take the animal out. Unfortunately, that's not typically the way it works. First of all, it's very hard to break a car window. And when you do do that, it shatters and you have broken glass. So the first thing is when you break in, you could accidentally injure the animal that's inside the car. If you do that, then the question is, under this law, are you protected uh, if the owner finds, shows up and gets their animal back and says, not only did you break my window, but you hurt my animal. A second scenario, which is very possible, is you break the window and the dog, or let's say you're able to open the door, whatever, uh, the dog runs out of the car, runs into the street, and gets killed by another car. Uh, what what happens now? Is this law going to protect people for that? A third scenario is what is a well-intentioned person breaks into the vehicle and the dog uh, attacks them, or it gets runs away and bites somebody else. Uh, these and again, is the person the good Samaritan? 
covered under this new law, and will they be able to uh, do this without getting sued? And, and one of the complications about the law, and I don't mean it to say it's a bad law, is how much in documentation does, it, uh, does a good Samaritan have to have to prove to a judge that they sh- had the right to go in there? Uh, do they have to take a video? Do they have to take photos? Do they have to watch the animal for a certain period of time? And one example, Laurie, uh, where animal control officers and police have made mistakes is they see a dog in a car, it's hot outside, and the dog is panting. Now, we both, most people would assume that means the dog is suffering. Well, without actually looking into other factors that are going on, a dog could be panting because, for example, the owner ran into the store, which I want your listeners to know, I don't support anybody ever leaving a a dog in a car, even for a minute, unattended. But assuming somebody does and runs into a 7-Eleven for one minute and when they and the people somebody in a parking lot sees a dog panting, they break in, they uh, break the window, they get the dog out, maybe there's some other things the dog gets injured, the person gets nipped and the owner comes out two minutes later and says, "My dog was panting because he just spent two hours at the dog park. He's not hot. And then you look at the dog and you realize the dog doesn't want water. The dog is ready to run around the block again. Okay, so, Bob, but, but, but you know what? It, um, how about just common sense? I mean, here we, we live in Palm Springs, California, and it's 115 degrees today. If I see a dog in a car, I want to break the window just because it's common sense. The dog won't last one minute in that car. That's a very good point. When it's 116 degrees, I don't think you have to worry about it. But what about when the car is parked in the shade and the windows are cracked open and it's 90 degrees? Now, typically, experts will tell you that the temperature can rise about 20 degrees more. That means in a certain period of time, it could get to 110. But at the moment you're doing that, is it 90 degrees? Is it 80? Was the air conditioning on just before you showed up? So we don't know how the judges and the courts will deal with this in those marginal situations. But I I definitely think it's trying to address the situations where it's obvious this animal is suffering. But there are areas or examples where it may not be obvious, and I would like people to err on the side of rescuing the dog. But whether this Tennessee law will protect them or not, it remains to be seen. And what's going to happen is well-intentioned people will do this, and uh, situations will come up where somebody will say, you should never have broken into my car, you made a complete mistake, you hurt my animal, or somebody else got hurt, I'm going to sue you. Will the judges say that that person's protected? Bob, do you think we're going to see more states trying to enact laws like this? Yes, and I sure hope so, too, okay. because it's long overdue. And I, I, want, I know so many police officers in California that are thrilled when that law was passed because they wanted to break in to protect an animal. But their supervisors said, nope, you can't do that. Uh, you might get sued. Uh, and what would end up happening is they're waiting till the animal is passed out. And often by that time, it's too late. Bob Ferber, thank you very much. You're welcome. Don't go away. When we come back, a tiger cub was found wandering around a neighborhood in California. What would you do if you came across this situation?
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. You know, nothing shocks me anymore about how badly we humans treat animals and the many ways we devise to kill and abuse them. So I saw this article in Bloomberg Business the other day. The next brilliant idea is described in the article titled, In South Africa, ranchers are breeding mutant animals to be hunted. And the article goes on to tell how the specially bred golden new or wildebeest are especially prized by rich hunters. They pay almost $50,000 for a chance to hunt one of the animals that rarely occur in nature. The owner of one hunting ranch east of Johannesburg breeds various animals with unusual features for which the hunters will pay a premium to go after. Joe Mealy with Committee to Abolish Sport Hunting is with us on the show. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me on, Dr. Laurie. I appreciate uh, the opportunity you give us. Joe, just a few weeks ago, we recently had you on the show talking about other types of canned hunting operations. Are these kinds of game ranches different in any way? They're different um, in that the species being bred and hunted are different. Um, in North America, specifically the United States and, and, and Texas, to narrow it down a bit more, you'll have canned hunting ranches that feature bears, elk, deer, other North American wildlife. In South Africa, the canned hunting ranches uh, feature lions, rhinos, wildebeest, uh, animals that are native to that area. So other than the species that are being killed, there's really no difference. Joe, proponents of canned hunting ranches say that without these businesses, many species would be extinct or near extinction. In fact, the ranch owner mentioned in the article said, quote, my first priority is to generate an income from the animals on my land, but conservation is a byproduct of what I do. What do you think about this? Ah, yes, the old, they're better off with us than in the wild excuse. You know, it, we hear these kinds of comments from zoos all the time that they serve a valuable purpose because their breeding programs ensure that the animals will not fall into extinction. But at what price does that come? And is that really what we want? Do we want wildlife that no longer lives wild and free? You know, if an animal exists only on a hunting ranch or in a zoo, they're functionally extinct in the wild, and the natural world feels the effect of their loss. You know, so keeping rhinos in a cage in a zoo or on a hunting ranch really does nothing to help the animals that they had a symbiotic relationship with in nature. It only helps those whose bank accounts are padded uh, from their being bred and sold at auction to the highest bidder. Yeah, it, it seems sort of silly to me that uh, to hear these claims that such businesses contribute to the preservation of wildlife species. Uh, Joe, aside from the obvious that the animals are killed for recreation, do the animals bre bred by these ranches suffer in any way? I mean, literally, they are creating freaks of nature, and certainly the breeders have no real idea what they are doing except to create something novel-looking. Oh, of course. 
you know, when you breed animals for certain traits, you're also breeding in undesirable characteristics and conditions in them. We see this all the time with dog and cat breeding, how German shepherds are prone to conditions like hip dysplasia and many Dalmatians are deaf. Persian cats have dental disorders and polycystic kidney disease. You know, the list goes on. Uh, with these hunting ranches, when they breed white lions, they really don't care about their skin diseases and cancers that become more likely. Yeah. Uh, Impala that are bred to be black and other colors are far more susceptible to heat stroke and other skin conditions from the sun. These breeding facilities really do have nothing to do with conservation because these, not only are these animals not free, but if they were to be free, uh, they were to escape, which is inevitable, they'll be easy prey for predators since these mutations make them desirable. Excuse me, since the mutations that make them desirable to hunters uh, leave them with no natural camouflage to protect them against predators. Uh, it's not natural selection, it's genetic manipulation and exploitation. Oh, well stated. And what, what are some of the other problems the, this industry creates? There are plenty of other problems. Um, these ranches are just another form of farming and ranching, uh, you know, and the animals are nothing more than livestock. There's no natural predator-prey relationship uh, because any predators capable of impacting the profitability of these businesses are eliminated as soon as they find their way onto the ranch. Um, you can make a case that these operations contribute to famine in the areas where they, where they exist. Uh, this, their immense success, and you mentioned the obscene amount of money these hunters pay to kill these animals, uh, this kind of encourages farmers who are growing crops for human food to consider converting their land over to hunting ranches. You can make far more money raising mutant animals to kill than growing sweet potatoes and greens. And just like other canned hunting ranches in the United States and other countries, a lot of hunting groups do oppose them. Uh, when we're talking about mutant African wildlife, the South American Hunters and Game Association says that breeding mutant animals amounts to unnatural manipulation of wildlife. So these kinds of places appear, appeal, I should say, to very few people, only the, the wealthy few that have the billions of dollars to keep them thriving. Joe, in your opinion, why do these places appeal to people? There's, unfortunately, there's uh, what I believe is a very troubled segment of society that enjoys killing and enjoys inflicting pain and suffering on helpless animals. I, I really think the psychological community should take a deeper look into what drives these people and really try to address this as what I believe is a mental illness and a sickness. These people need help. They're not normal. You know, when young children are raised, their, their instincts are to be compassionate towards animals. Yet, for some reason, these people grow up to be the, the complete opposite. I mean, who needs to kill a giraffe? Who needs to kill an elephant? Who needs to kill a bear? It, it, it's, it's so unnecessary, and to see their faces, their smiling faces as they pose with these dead animals, it's, it's really very like when you read serial killers, how they, how they enjoy killing their prey who happen to be human. You know, the only difference in, in the minds of many is that killing animals is legal. Yeah, there's certainly something to be said about people who get enjoyment and pleasure 
out of killing a beautiful animal. Um, Joe, how can people get in touch with you and Cash? You, well, thanks for asking. You can check us out on Facebook. Um, just put in Committee to Abolish Sport Hunting, and our page will come up. Uh, and feel free to participate. Tell me that you think I'm right on the mark, or tell me that you think I'm off my rocker, whatever you, whatever you feel. Uh, you can also check out our website at www.abolishsporthunting.org, and you can get in touch with us that way. Thanks, Joe. You are right on the mark. Thanks, Dr. Laurie. I love being on your show. Today tip of the day has to do with kittens. If you find a litter of newborn or very young kittens, do not assume the mother has abandoned them. If they are not clearly in distress, their mother is probably hunting for food or in the process of moving them. She may even be hiding nearby until you've gone. You should leave the kittens alone for a couple hours and stay far enough away so the mother feels safe to return. If she doesn't return and you're absolutely convinced they are abandoned, contact your local cat rescue group and ask for advice about your particular situation. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Should your cat go outside? I mean, should you get him or her into a harness to walk on a leash? Now, when I received Laura Moss's new book about this, my instant reaction was, well, that may not be such a good idea. But I kept on staring at it on my desk and the title, Adventure Cats, Living Nine Lives to the Fullest. Well, I decided to learn more. So here now is Laura Moss herself. Welcome, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, well, how did you get interested in bringing your cats outdoors like this? Uh, Well, I worked as a pet writer for several years, and I had the opportunity to interview a lot of the more um, famous adventure cat owners, uh, like Craig Armstrong's cat, Millie the Climbing Cat, and um, Stephen Simmons' cat, Burma the Adventure Cat. And I was very curious about how people were going from, you know, leash training their cats and walking around the backyard to actually you know, taking them out on these adventures, like hiking and camping. So I started looking into it and talking to cat owners and vets and behaviorists to, to see if this was possible. And that's kind of how I stumbled upon this whole community of people who have been, you know, walking and hiking and camping with their cats, you know, for quite some time. So I think, you know, adventure cats kind of became the focal point of this community, but it's actually been in existence for quite some time. Yeah. Well, the book is really interesting to page through. It's beautiful, and the photographs are abundant and really neat. Uh, You do distinguish between sort of taking your cat in a well-fitted harness on a leash around the neighborhood and really this concept of adventure cats. Talk about that a little bit. Um, What we say is that, you know, any cat is an adventure cat. You know, you could have indoor adventures, you can have outdoor adventures. And for most cats, you know, if they're going to go outside, usually those adventures are going to be close to home in the neighborhood, in the backyard, and maybe in a local park. But there are some people that have taken their cats, you know, much farther than just the front yard. 
And so we like to share some of those stories in the book and on our website, adventurecats.org, about how these people got interested in taking their cats, you know, and how they knew their cats were ready. And so that's kind of, um, you know, what you'll find in the book is both safety information as well as just these tales of amazing cats doing amazing things. And, you know, one thing we like to emphasize quite a lot is that it's definitely not for every cat. And, you know, before you ever take your cat outside, we always say, you know, talk to your vet first, make sure it's, you know, a good idea for your cat. Make sure your cat has, like you said, a snug fitting harness and that your cat's comfortable on it. And then, of course, you know, make sure your cat is microchipped and up to date on vaccines and flea and tick and heartworm uh, medications. What sort of cat likes this? Um, I think it can be, um, it could be any cat, but not every cat. We'd say, you know, you want to look at a cat's personality. Cats have different personalities just like we do. Uh, So if you have a cat that's maybe very, very valiant, very courageous, um, or a cat that's very interested in the great outdoors, maybe he watches the world outside the window all the time or is always trying to dash out the front door. But just because your cat, you know, has these characteristics doesn't necessarily mean that he he or she is going to be very comfortable in an unpredictable environment like the outdoors. So I think definitely look for those personality traits, but, you know, cats can surprise you. One of my good friends has a cat who's, who's very skittish. And, you know, I've rarely gotten to see her when I come over, but she begs to go outside. But she likes to go outside with her with her parents and, you know, comfortably alone in the backyard. So I think, you know, it depends on the cat's personality, but definitely expect to be surprised. When Lori and I travel, we try to get a pet sitter staying at our house. And after one of our trips, we learned to our horror that this uh, new pet sitter had taken it upon herself to take one of our cats out for a walk for the first time with none of the uh, precautions or forethought that you have uh, mentioned. And later on, we learned she had a substance abuse problem also, but that's neither here nor there. So we were horrified by this and frightened and thought it was a very close call. We're afraid that, and maybe you can dispel this or make me feel a little better, that giving your cat a taste of the outdoors will make them more likely to dash through an open door and just be gone. Right. And that's like one of the things that it's, it's so important. If you leash train your cat, you know, you start that indoors. And every time you take your cat outdoors, even if it's just into your, you know, your backyard, you want to pick your cat up and carry him or her outside. Because you don't want your cats oh, to I know see. that they can never walk out on their own, even on a leash. Yeah. So, you know, from day one, start that practice and don't let your cat walk out the door leashed or unleashed. Okay, let's go through a couple of the basics. Talk about the harness and the leash and what should we look for? How do you deal with that? Uh, so there's a lot of, there's a variety of harnesses um, that are available and some are made exclusively for cats. Some are made um, for dogs and some kind of owners just because there's more dog harnesses out there you know there's more variety to choose from they often choose to you know go with a small dog harness but uh, the most important thing to do is to make sure it's a good fit and you know there are strappier harnesses and there are um, what are known as walking jackets or walking vests and you know oftentimes you will get a better fit for a cat and like a walking jacket or walking vest because it's it fits more snugly around the cat mm-hmm. so that's something that you know we, we always recommend and you know once you get your cat into the harness, and it's a, it's a slow process, you, know, you don't want to frighten your cat, you, don't, you just always want to make that a very positive experience. And so once you get the harness onto your cat, you, know, you want to make sure that it fits snugly, that you know, cats are a little escape artists, so you don't want to have any um, issues with, with a loose-fitting harness where they could get away. So that's why you always start indoors and make sure that you know, it fits your cat well. And before you ever take your cat outside, every single time, check to make sure the harness is 
is fitted properly, that it's it's fastened, you know, it's fastened well, and that the harness is in good condition, so there's no possible way your cat could get out. Are we at the stage where novelty is driving this? I mean, if I see a gal or a guy walking down the street with a cat on a leash, I'm really going to want to know what's going on there, or is this uh, really becoming a more mainstream sort of thing? I, I don't know if I don't know if I would call it mainstream quite yet. I will say I've been surprised by the number of people who have who have told me, oh, you know, I've been walking my cats for years. And the first time I encountered it was probably, I think that was back in 2002. I was volunteering with a local shelter and they one day were like, oh, yeah, take this cat for take this cat for a walk. And I had never heard of yeah, such a thing. Wow. So, I mean, I think it's definitely been done, um, but I don't know if if, if it's. I will say I think that the number of people who are sharing pictures on social media are showing other people that it's possible. But I, I don't know if it's mainstream. A lot of people have told me that when they take their cat out in a stroller or a cat out in a harness, they get a lot of a weird looks and, you know, that kind of deters them from wanting to do it. But I think the conscientious pet owners who are taking their cats out safely are doing it for the best interest of their cats. You know, if, the, if their cat likes being outside, if their cat enjoys that physical activity or mental stimulation, I don't think that it's necessarily going to be a mainstream where every cat owner is going to take their cat outside. Uh, like we say, I mean, there's a reason why indoor cats live twice as long as outdoor cats is yeah. because they're not exposed to disease and wildlife and traffic. So I think that for the safety of their pets, most people are going to feel more comfortable having them indoors. But the people who do take their cats outside, I think, are going to keep those adventures close to home. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be something that's going to catch on everywhere. But I do think that taking your cat out on a harness and a leash is a better alternative to letting your cat just free roam outdoors. I think you may be underestimating where this can go. I'm paging through this and I see on the cover, for instance, a beautiful cat on a mountain. It's quite enticing. We'll see. Frank McMillan from uh, Best Friends gave you a super kudos on your book and you should be congratulated on that. Oh, yeah. I got the opportunity to visit uh, Best Friends a few years ago and volunteer um, in Cat World for a few days. Oh, I love what they're doing for their cats. Not just the fact that they'll take in any cat and give them a great home for the remainder of their life, but they're doing so much work with clicker training and really offering a lot of alternatives for cats who, who may have like behavioral issues or um, I guess physical ailments. And so I just love the fact that you know anything from clicker training to stroller rides to taking their cats on walks around their sanctuary – I, I think that they just have such an innovative approach to giving cats the best life possible. And so I just love um, everything that Dr. Frank is doing to, to work with every cat on an individual basis like that. Yes. And you do talk about clicker training in the book here. And one other thing I'd like you to uh, touch upon is cats in water. You have a pretty large section devoted to uh, cats being in and around the water. Yes. And I think that that's the thing that always surprises me when I have gotten to meet some of these cat owners who whose cats you know, take those first steps to actually get into the water because I can't imagine my own cats ever doing that. I mean, they're fascinated by water. They like to walk down to the stream in our backyard and, and paw around in it. But um, I think that whenever there's a cat who's comfortable in water or wants to get in water, it still surprises me. And um, one thing we tell people again and again is that if your cat is interested in water or wants to get in the water, they will make those choices for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, never to force a cat to get into the water, because whenever you force a cat to do anything, I think we all, you know, all cat owners know that it's going to backfire. And it's not only going to harm your potential to, you know, maybe take your cat outside on an adventure, but it's also going to potentially harm your relationship with your cat. So I think just taking those things slow and, you know, never pushing your cat outside his comfort zone is so important. And then there's a lot of 
safety precautions to take into mind, too. I spoke with a vet um, in Tennessee who takes her cat canoeing, you know, quite often. And just she has some great tips on how to make sure that if you ever venture, you know, into a boat or even just, you know, walk down to the edge of the stream, that you're doing that with your cat's best interest in mind. We're speaking with Laura Moss. The book is Adventure Cats, Living Nine Lives to the Fullest. A wonderful book. Laura, what's the website? And uh, of course, people can buy this book anywhere these days. Uh, Yes, the website is adventurecats.org. And we have a variety of tales of people who um, take their cats hiking or take their cats just on, you know, close to home adventures and all kinds of things like that. And the book is available on Amazon and in bookstores. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Hi, thank you for having me. Stick around. More with Animals Today after the break. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. We often say that Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, and we certainly cover the most critical and newsworthy topics and issues affecting all animals worldwide. When you join us, you'll hear fascinating interviews with leading animal advocates from all walks of life. From lawyers to whale protectors to authors to tortoise rescuers, Animals Today brings you timely, interesting animal news. And often our guests tell us how we all can take action to help our animal friends. But you know what? Just like you, we also love our companion animals our dogs and cats and rabbits and more. Listen in and you'll get useful advice from expert veterinarians and animal behaviorists, as well as product news and reviews and more fun stuff. So join us on Animals Today and thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. You know, we used to have a bug guy come by the house each month to spray the perimeter of the house because we're getting a lot of ants inside. And we always wondered whether this was safe for the dogs and when we could let them go out again. And what if they stepped in the sprayed area? Would they then lick their paws and get sick? You know, I'm still not really sure what risks pesticides and weed killers pose to dogs and cats. But I know who does, Robert Reed, Medical Director, VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Dr. Reed, I have so many questions about this. Let's start with insecticides, especially the ones professionally sprayed. What are they and what precautions do I need to take with my companion animals around the house? Well, first off, you know, I could give you some suggestions of things to do to protect your household and your pets in your household. Um, but I think it's important anytime you ask someone to apply a pesticide around your home to know what they're going to use. There are so many different agents out there that are used for pesticides as pesticides, um, and they have different levels of risk. And the exposure risk is different, and the way the cats or dogs might respond to them is different. So I think it's realistic to to expect that you know what agents are being used and and what level of safety they have. And those questions about how long can your cat or dog be exposed to them, how long are they going to be in the environment, where are they going to go in the environment, Um, is the residue that's left behind going to be toxic? Those are all legitimate questions. Um, that you should ask and you should think about what your goal is for pesticide treatment so that if you're treating for ants, you you just treat for ants. If you're just treating your trees, you just treat your trees. You know, you limit the exposure to the environment and to the and limit the areas that your pet can come into contact with it. 
specifically, if you know, if you're having someone come over to your house uh, to to treat the area for pet for pests, then you, you of course want to remove the pets from the area. All of their toys, beds, I mean, chew bones, food bowls, all of those should be removed. Um, always remember to cover any, cover any aquaria that fish might be in so that any vapors or residues don't end up in the water there. Um, I would make sure uh, that, you, uh, that you know how long they have to be off of the area. Obviously, as you, as you mentioned, you want to keep the uh, pets away from any areas until it's completely dried. Um, but you also want to know how long, even after that, you might be able, they might be able to have contact. You know, treating a lawn, for instance, with a herbicide or with a pesticide may have uh, a longer duration of risk than treating the tile in your kitchen, for instance, because of the different products that are used, different rates of degradation. You know, if you know what product is being used, you can know whether sunlight or whether water has an effect on the degradation. But you, you should ask those, and I think you're, you should expect your, your pest control provider to be able to provide that information. Yeah, uh, do, go ahead. There's another thing that I think you want to keep track of. If you're applying a spray, then you have one potential impact. But if you're using a pesticide that's provided in a bait or something that the pest is intended to eat, then the level of risk to your pets is completely different. And, in fact, toxicities are probably much more likely in cases where, you know, where herbicides are more likely insecticides or rodenticides or snail baits are provided in forms that animals eat, meaning that your dog or cat might be tempted to eat them as well. Now, do dogs and cats like to lick these products, or is it just incidental contact that's really the concern here? I think that, again, depends on which agent you're using, and it depends on where it's being applied. Uh, I think that there aren't very many dogs or cats that would lick a surface after it's been sprayed, but there are a few, and you need to know your dog and need to make sure that if they're intended to do that, they don't, just because that's an an increase in exposure that you can avoid. Um, But once it's dried, the, the chance that the residue impacting them, in other words, getting on their feet and, and licking them and infect, affecting them to a level that's toxic is extremely small. Uh, I think that when it's wet, there's a greater chance of absorption of the toxin, which may have a higher likelihood of reaching a level of toxicity. But once it's applied and dried, there's very little risk of exposure, with the exception of, of anything that's applied to the lawn that may have a long degradation process where pets may be rolling around in the grass and having extended exposures over a long period of time that might increase their level of risk. And what are the signs of toxicity? Depends on the toxin involved. You know, if you're talking about an organophosphate, which is more likely something that's used as a spray or a pyrethrin, it, it could be neurologic. It could be gastrointestinal, meaning, you know, drooling or vomiting or diarrhea. It depends largely on what's being used, and that's another good reason um, to ask what's being used so you know what to expect. But some of these toxins that are used as rotenticides actually cause internal bleeding. Some of them cause swelling in the brain, and this is of both the intended victim and an unintended victim like a dog or a cat. The most common side effect of something like snail bait is probably seizures. Wow. 
And what's the treatment for toxicity? It depends again on what you're using. Um, it's really important if your pet is exposed to a toxin that you know what it is because we have available um, experts through the uh, Animal Poison Control Center that can help us come up with the best way to treat uh, any exposure if we know what it is. So if there's any way that you can provide a veterinarian or poison control specialist with the exact compound, it will go a long way to helping in the success of the treatment. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. So obviously, if one suspects their pet has ingested or becomes ill from pesticides, call your veterinarian right away. There is a National Pesticide Information Center, which Dr. Reed was telling me about, that people can call if they have questions related to pesticide use around their home and around their pets. That number is 800-858-7378. 800-858-7378. That's the National Pesticide Information Center. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society, while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Animals Today Radio is made possible in part by a generous grant from International Society for Animal Rights, isaronline.org.